0: craft Revival. Hope you guys have been uh, having a phenomenal uh, last week and really enjoying winter. I know that's an odd thing f- for some people to even uh, comprehend, but it's here and in full bloom and for another couple months, so might as well get out and enjoy it, which is what this week's episode is all about. Um, I haven't been working on very many projects lately. I've been attempting to make a. Um, jorvik panpipe. i've never made panpipe before I've never made a musical instrument at all so it's been kind of a fun experiment um and i kind of semi get musical tunes out of it but it's definitely something i need to practice a few more times and yeah you really get down get down pat it was going to be for my my three-year-old's b- birthday uh present for him and then i i took too long making it and passed it so i guess it's just for the fun of it and uh he'll end up with a uh Little panpipe he can cart around and and uh, make noises to annoy his parents. <laughs> uh, it's been a fun project, though. Other than that, I haven't had time to do much. I did get out and go snowshoeing again and snowshoe hunting, I should say. So, went up to the top of the mountain and uh, I got myself a snowshoe hare, which is something I've never tried before. As I mentioned before, I'm kind of new to the whole meat eating and hunting thing it's been over the last couple of years um and there really aren't very many people in this part of the country that hunt snowshoe hares you only find them up on top of the mountain we were up uh probably at nine and a half thousand feet or something like that um it's a bit of a drive to get up there and then you have to have snowshoes to chase them around whatever so not very many people go snowshoe hare hunting around here and I know that's different in a few different areas of the country. I know, you know, back in like the Northeast and whatever, it's has a little bit, little bit more of a, uh, heritage there, the hunts a little more well-known, but yeah, got out, um, did some snowshoeing around and it's amazing for how many tracks you see right after a fresh snow. I mean, it had snowed that morning and I was out probably an hour and a half or two hours after I finished snowing, there were tracks everywhere only saw two rabbits which boggled my mind with how many tracks we've, we saw but um yeah that's hunting i guess got one um uh, i saved the hide because i intend to uh, bark tan it like we talked about in episode say i think that was episode four which i'll link up to in the show notes but um yeah it was gonna be interesting to see whether the white fur changes color at all. I know that's something Jesse said she didn't really ever experience, but she's usually using a gray or darker fur, so I'm kinda of interested with a pure white fur like a, a snowshoe hare has, what's what's gonna to happen with to the color if it'll change at all. Hopefully get around to doing that here in the next week or two. After this week, I think it's gonna my schedule's gonna lighten up a little bit, so Hopefully I have time to start a few projects. Uh, I would really, really like to uh, start a few more things, test a few more things, learn a few more things. So hopefully you guys are all all doing the same. Um, This week's episode, we're talking with uh, Kylan Marone from Lure of the North, um, which is a snowshoe expedition company out of uh, Ontario, Canada. Uh, We're talking traditional winter camping the type primarily known to the uh, boreal forest uh, the northern forests and some of the equipment and techniques and philosophy behind what they do and why they do it fun conversation for me we're focused a little less on how to do something per se and kind of just talking about and describing the type of camping and types of trips that they lead uh in the northern forests for extended periods. I did this kind of for two reasons. Uh, A, we're in the middle of winter and I know a lot of people are starting to feel like it's dragging on. So, I want to encourage you to get out and make the most of winter. And I feel like talking to someone like this would hopefully, um, yeah, provide the motivation. and, And also, Kylan and her husband Dave have Uh, significant amount of experience being outdoors and active during the winter Um, so we talk a little bit about uh, you know clothing and layering and the types of equipment they use to stay mobile and whatnot which in my mind is part of the reason why some folks really dislike winter and I'm sure there are some folks that'll dislike winter anyways but um, it really is amazing how much of a difference it makes being able to be out and active and enjoying the season in which you're living. So uh, hopefully you, you take some value out of this, this episode and um, yeah, you learn something and enjoy, enjoy the chat we had. That said, thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, Hit me up if you have any questions, comments, uh, suggestions for the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and please consider subscribing and or sharing with a friend. Still trying to grow this, still trying to get it off the ground. Yeah, any help would be appreciated. So let's uh, let's jump into the conversation where I had asked Kylan about her initial experiences doing extended uh, winter camping trips and uh, how that led into leading expeditions.
1: Yeah, we, Dave and I met in university. Um, We both took the Outdoor Adventure Leadership Program at Laurentian in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. (laughs) And um, we, in Sudbury, in the school year, winter is, you know, five out of the eight months of the school year. So, um, you know, we both were into the outdoors, but realized quickly that, most of our school year was winter, so we wanted to keep being outside, so we figured we needed to get into winter camping, and um, we had we'd taken a course called winter camping in our program, and it was just an intro to the different types of camping. So we did, you know, Quincy's, we did hot one night in like a massive hot tent, um, like a prospector tent. And then we did our own snow shelters, um, you know, like snow caves or coffins, whatever you want to call them. And my first experience with hot tenting was awful because it was this massive tent with like an eight foot peak, um, thirty students trying to hang their stuff oh, to wow. dry. Um, well, not actually, it wasn't thirty. It was more like twenty, but. You know, we rotated through, everyone tries out the Quincy's, everyone tries out the snow caves, and then um, the hot tents. So the people that were in the Quincy's were all trying to dry out their gear in the hot tents. It wasn't just the, you know, seven or eight people that were supposed to sleep in there. So it's like 20 people's staff drying and it was so cold and smoky, we didn't know how to manage the stove properly and so it was sort of like, oh, this is what old men do, you know, on a trap line, like this is not practical for camping.
0: No wonder people gave it up, huh?
1: Yeah. So (laughs) so that wasn't like a great intro to it. But then also in that course, um, our textbook for the course was The Snowwalker's Companion by Garrett and Alexandra Conover. So, you know, reading that textbook was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. They're using, you know, they, their whole um, ethos is like using terrain-appropriate technology for where you are. And, you know, beyond this course, we were trying to summer camp, basically, with, you know, a warmer sleeping bag, everything was still on our backs, you know, bigger sleeping bag, more food, um, a bigger backpack. And then these like little modern snowshoes that we were able to rent from the school. And it just seemed like so much work. And like, you'd be sinking to your waist with all of your gear on your back with these little snowshoes. And then this book was like, no, 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 take it off your back, put it on a snowshoe or on a toboggan, get bigger snowshoes and it all works as a system. So my husband Dave at the time um, went to the Winter Camping Symposium uh, which is in um, Northern Wisconsin and he bought a snow trucker, like a two person snow trucker, he just went all in and then that winter we took it out for an eight day trip and just loved it. And um, was like, this is how it's supposed to be done. There was a lot of, lot of learning that went on, to, uh, you know, how to set up the wood stove properly. And we were still using modern snowshoes. So the toboggans were tipping on one side to the other. And so it was a gradual, um, you know, development. And we ended up, that's why we started making our own gear, because it wasn't readily available in Canada in the traditional uh, style. So we started making our own moccasins and weaving our own snowshoes and making our toboggans. And it just naturally or gradually felt really comfortable. And um, our friends started seeing our gear and they're like, I want to make a pair of moccasins. So we started hosting little workshops just for our friends in our living room, Um, you know, Losing money on it, just just for fun, just to share the knowledge. And then their friends' friends, and then their friends' friends wanted moccasins. So, eventually, we started being like, well, I don't even know these people, so I'm going to, you know, start charging. And, um, yeah, we ended up just starting basically with the moccasin, um, our company. And then our professors started to get the buzz, and Uh, One of them wanted a private workshop for him and his colleagues and friends at his house. So we were making moccasins. We were all sitting around chatting. He's like, well, this is great, but now we have to go out and use them. And so he pointed around the table, are you in, are you in, are you in? Will you take us on an expedition? So that was like our first expedition that we led.
0: What had you done personally at that point had you taken an extended one by yourselves
1: at that point yeah we had um, so we had gone on this 8 day and then the next winter we Dave and I went on a personal trip and we did 40 days on a northern ontario river um, the cavannack which flows into the albany river and yeah it was after that trip that we were you know we learnt learned so much and we had to we came home we were like, We have to share this and so that's how, you know, we we kind of had this spark of wanting to take other people out. And uh yeah, so our our professor was like, Will you take us on a an eight day trip? So we did and then um that was sort of the birth of the, the expeditions and we were told That we would never sell week-long trips. Um, People just want bucket list trips, but, you know, weekend kind of adventures. And we we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do long trips because we knew the value of being out and, you know, immersing yourself in in the environment. And you get into this rhythm that is really good for you. You know, it, it kind of resets your your clock internally and um, emotionally and people feel really good when they come home, they feel, you know, rejuvenated and re-inspired and invigorated. So we were just like, well, people say we can't do it, but we're going to, we're going to go for it anyways. And, and now we, you know, our three week trip, we've got a three week trip down the Miss this year and it sold out before we even put it on the website. And, um, you know, just with returning participants, and it's our intro trip this year was the first year that we our, our intro trip didn't sell and all of our like 8 9 and 2 week trips are all you know sold out so
0: that's understandable in my mind cuz yeah it's the it's more like the 3 week one that I'd be interested in cuz I feel like in a couple days yeah you have a hard time settling into any sort of habits or rhythms or anything like that it's it's hard to get settled in just a couple days doing anything
1: yeah, you're as soon as you get out, you're already thinking about the drive home or like oh the list of things that you have to do. You can't you can't forget about those things for a while. And even on our longer trips, like, you know, we try and encourage people to to just try not to think about the list that you have to do at home and, you know, until you get home because you know, how often do you get a concentrated experience where you do just kind of allow yourself to truly be in the moment.
0: Yeah, it's pretty rare these days. So uh, how did that that first expedition go? Did it go pretty well?
1: Yeah, it went really well. Yeah, we um, we went to Ishpatina Ridge, which is the highest point in Ontario, in the heart of uh, Tamagmi in the north. And yeah, it's three days in. And then we set up a base camp, do a hike up, up to the, the highest point, and then have a rest day, and then three days out. And the uh, it was super snowy. The snow was so deep. Um, so it was a tough three days to get in. And then it got warm. So then it was a real tough slog on the way out. But then the last day, everything froze back up again. And... Um, yeah, we kind of were uh, running on the bare ice because all the snow had kind of melted and um, refroze. So, yeah, it was a great, great adventure, lots of learning, and, um, you know, the smiles on the faces, I think, you know, was a testament to to this, the wilderness experience that you can have in the winter.
0: On your, your first trip that you guys did alone, do you feel like you, what was the learning curve like? For those first couple of trips that you did by yourself,
1: well, the, one of the biggest things that we learned on that trip was that even if it says it's a river, <laughs> um, don't on the map don't necessarily you know take it for at face value because the uh, you know we had started on this little tributary river called the Fox River, and we you know we liked the idea of going from this tiny little. Creek to a bigger river to the big Albany River, and our goal was to get to James Bay. And it just in our heads kind of was like a romantic uh, goal. But the Fox River was just like this Beaver Creek. And it, I mean, it was so chocked full of little dams, and the ice was terrible, and it was all overgrown with willow. And, you know, we spent 11 days going about. Thirty kilometers. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, we decided to abandon that that river and then found a logging road that connected us to the Kabinakagami, which was a much big, bigger river and actually had some open spaces to travel on. So we were, you know, back breaking um, trying to go over these little beaver dams. And of course, there's no wind in the in the little creek, so all of the snow was like super deep and heavy. And then I had uh, I had rawhide snowshoes and they just got destroyed because once the varnish wears off of them and if they get wet, then they start sagging and then it takes a long time to dry them out at camp. So I spent a lot of time babying my snowshoes and Dave had the monofilament snowshoes and they were perfect from day one to day 40. So that was a big wake-up call for us in that you can't ignore modern-day advancements. And so that's what a lot of our company does is take the traditional form and the traditional ways, but not ignoring modern advancements and using the best of both worlds to accomplish your goal. So now we use the white ash uh, wood and shape of the traditional snowshoe, but we weave it with a 400-pound test fishing line. Um, and so there's no maintenance, there's no sag, and it's just a, it's the best of both worlds. So that was a big learning for us there.
0: That was something I actually really wanted to cover on this is, yeah, kind of the balance between using traditional and going modern. And yeah, uh, You were mentioning before you had tried modern snowshoes early on and you weren't very impressed with them. I had kind of the same issues. I've tried modern snowshoes a number of times and I've never been very impressed. I uh, had a, a time a couple of years ago, I was going, I mean, I'm in Northern Utah, so we were renowned for some of the best powder on earth. And I had a time a couple of years ago, I went snowshoeing with a, a good friend and I was using snowshoes that were graded for someone that was like 40 or 50 pounds heavier than me, and I was still going hip deep, and you can't make any sorts of progress when you're going hip deep in snow. No. So I ended up making a pair this last winter, and it's amazing the difference that having a traditional style snowshoe will make.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the surface area. We have a <laughs> we have this sticker that we send out to anyone who, who purchases like a snowshoe kit or snowshoes from us, and... It's a little cartoon, and it says size does matter, and there's a picture of um, someone struggling, their face is red, and they've got, like, this trench behind them and in front of them, and it says modern snowshoes, and then it says somewhere in there, and then right beside it is a picture of the same snowshoer, but happy, and it's, like, traditional snowshoes um, right there because you can see them because you're floating on top of the snow, and uh, it makes such a huge difference, the surface area alone. Like, we, we don't size our snowshoes for weight. We say, how tall are you? And you want the widest snowshoes that your legs will allow you to use. So if you're, you know, skinny as a rail, but you're six foot two, we're going to put you in the biggest snowshoes that we can because if you're stride Will allow you to walk with wide snowshoes, then why wouldn't you want to float even higher on the on the surface? You know. That's a good so point. yeah, yeah. I think um, the the snowshoes that are available now at like Mountain Equipment Co-op and all the other gear stores they're... and that that goes back to the Snowwalkers Companion, where it's talking about terrain appropriate technology. Those snowshoes that are being sold to you, they're for the mountains. Like think of the the actual store, Mountain Equipment Co-op. You know that is originally founded for the mountains, and it still just carries on for those mountainous terrains where, yeah, the the snow is windswept and crusty and icy, so you want those crampons, and you don't need as much surface area. But people are trying trying to to use them in the boreal forest, and it's just deep snow and it's just not appropriate but that's what's available so that's what people buy and
0: and you expect them to work because they're snowshoes yeah
1: exactly exactly we joke like oh man I'll never forget this in one of the outdoor magazines they were advertising these snowshoes with springs on them to absorb the shock from walking and I'm just thinking and they weren't they weren't any bigger than just, like, a big boot. So you're, you're strapping on these, like, moon shoes. And, <laughs> you know, they were talking about how Uh-oh. how it's going to, like, absorb the shock for your for your knees. I'm just thinking, if you're walking on, on ground that's hard enough that you need protection for your knees, you probably don't need those snowshoes to begin with. You just need, like, some stabilizers with some, you know, spikes on the bottom. <laughs> oh, it just made me
0: chuckle. I said there's no way you're going to need a springs in the snow around here at least
1: yeah exactly
0: how do you go about choosing which ways you go modern and how you go traditional and uh can you tell me about some of the other balances you made in some of your equipment and what you've gone modern with and what you've stayed traditional and kind of how you Mm -hmm. you play that balance
1: well another big one other than the snowshoes is our toboggans we use high density polyethylene or ultra high um density polyethylene and uh, apart from the the wooden toboggan and that is also a choice for time because it takes longer to make a a wooden toboggan but they're also much lighter and um, more flexible so they You know, go over on the portages over logs really nicely um, because they kind of roll over the log rather than be this like hard plank of wood. Um, Again, no maintenance. So, you know, you would want to wax your toboggan, you know, every night or not every night, every few nights. And so with the plastic toboggans, uh, there's no maintenance. And yeah, we've just found we still use the traditional shape, but have kind of upgraded the material a little bit. And then another thing that we do is uh, we use LED lanterns on our, you know, for lighting. We used to use candles, um, which was really romantic, and it had a nice, warm glow to it. But we were also, you know, the accidents could happen, and we had one person burn their boot because they just fell asleep with their feet up on the same table that the candle was. And, you know, you just it just screams hazard when you've got a group of people tiptoeing around an uneven floor, you know, with candles burning. So, yeah. you know, we've, we've got the led lanterns now and, but we still sleep on a bed of boughs. So we collect, um, green boughs from, from the forest around us and so you still get those aromas and, and the experience of sleeping on a bough floor. We still cut all our firewood using a, you know, a trail stove to cook, we use freeze dried food um, a lot of the times, like we buy bulk all of the raw ingredients and and mix up our meals that way, so we 're able to keep our food fairly light, you know upgrading to cast aluminum Dutch ovens instead of cast iron so that saves on trail trail weight for sure, but we still use traditional clothing a lot of all of our clothing is still very traditional. Um, wool pants, cotton anoraks with real coyote fur, buckskin moccasins and mittens. But then we'll have, you know, snow goggles that are made for, for the mountains. So, you know, we're not... Make, I mean, we do we do make uh, snow goggles out of, you know, birch or birch bark or, or carve them out of wood. But, you know, when they already sell snowboarding goggles you know it's sort of like well may as well use those
0: yeah What's um well let's let's ask this first what about your your tents and whatnot what do, what do those look like what are you guys using
1: we use pretty well exclusively uh snow trekker tents and they are you know a hail back to the prospector tent days but they use a lightweight tightly woven seven ounce canvas that is Uh, fire-treated. It has a a gasket in it for the stovepipe, and it also has a lightweight aluminum um, internal frame, so you don't have to cut your own poles every night. And so it makes the setup and takedown much faster, and you use less resources to, to set it up. And so... Yeah, the, I, I am super happy with them. We have the the wedge tents, uh, which are just like a rectangle, kind of A-frame-looking tent. And then we also have a, a yurt style, which is six-sided um, and a bit, uh, a bit more to set up, but it kind of gives a nice circular feel to, to the group when you're sitting around eating dinner and it's very social. Yeah, and we've been really happy with those.
0: Yeah, I've been kind of curious about those. I, I saw that you guys use canvas tents still, but I wasn't sure how old school type canvas sounds like these ones. Yeah. They come with the aluminum poles and whatever, and that would make life significantly easier if you're out leading expeditions.
1: Yeah. And the canvas is so much lighter. Like, uh, you know, a prospector tent, they usually use like 12 ounce cat canvas, maybe 10 ounce. And as soon as it gets, if it's untreated, as soon as it gets wet, it just absorbs any moisture, you know, and just becomes just a, a pig to, to carry around.
0: It's one of those things, there's, there's a lot to be said for some of the traditional equipment, but at the same time, yeah, there's some very nice improvements that have been made with modern modern technology.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, and there's no point to, to ignore it. Like, I, I get when people want to um, do recreations or, or be just, like, a hardcore traditionalist or purist, but for us, our end goal is to get out on the trail and to be out in the wilderness for longer. So if, if a modern upgrade or advancement is going to allow us to be out there longer, then it's a no-brainer
0: for us. So does that mean when you were talking about most of your clothing or whatever is still traditional, do you, have you found that that is the most effective clothing that, that is available?
1: Yeah, I do. I do think that for the type of travel that we're doing, in the type of terrain that we're in, with the, the climate that we're in, the traditional breathable buckskin and, and canvas is the best for this area. So, you know, you can get high-tech Gore-Tex and, and uh, you know, performance outerwear, but I, it does not breathe as well as, as the canvas. Um, You can be out in, you know, minus 40 or minus 10 and be just as comfortable in that canvas outerwear and you just change what you're wearing underneath. A lot of times when you're moving, when you're, you know, breaking trails through deep snow, you're generating a lot of moisture um, from your body and the canvas, the moisture just flows right through. But... Excuse me but it's uh, windproof so it's you know it's only going out one way and you stay dry and comfortable all day whereas with like a, a Gore-Tex jacket it's just it gets trapped one way or another and it's not as bulky so you can't you don't have that range of motion and ability to to layer underneath as well you know and nothing beats like a fur ruff on a windy day um
0: never tried one of those i'm gonna to have to uh, include it on a jacket at some point in the future
1: oh yeah I, I think it's essential if you're gonna be out on any sort of big lake or river uh yeah fur fur rough is, is essential
0: can you go ahead and describe your kind of like your your layering system and what you're looking for in clothing you were just talking about breathability with the cotton mm-hmm. and it's still blocking the wind what are what are you looking for in your layers um and then, yeah, how do, how do you generally go about layering for the types of activities and being outdoor and active and whatnot during the winter? What are you, what are you looking for in your clothing?
1: Yeah, so the the main things that we're looking for for our clothing is breathability, wiggle room, and insulation. So, you know, starting with our our footwear, the the moccasin. The, the breathability of them, of all of the clothing is essential because if you can think about wearing like a, a Baffin boot or a Sorrel boot, those are sort of like, um, this. I would say the second best thing. If you weren't going to invest in, in a pair of um, buckskin moccasins, then it's great because it's got a removable boot liner. However, during the day when you're wearing whatever layers you've got to keep you warm, when you're walking around, you're generating excess moisture and so if you're wearing wool socks and a wool boot liner that's great because your moisture gets wicked away from your from your body but as soon as it reaches that outer membrane that is waterproof and reaches that cold air of of the ambient temperature it just freezes so by midday your feet are going to start to get cold because you're literally walking around with an ice block on your feet so with the breathable moccasins the buckskin or the leather is breathable. So as it moves from your socks to your boot liners to your insoles, it keeps going right through the buckskin. And when it reaches the outside, the cold air or the cold snow just wicks that moisture away. And so provided you have sub uh, below freezing temperatures, you, your feet are going to stay dry all day. So at the end of the day, it feels like you're still wearing those slippers that you, you know, put on in the morning. And they're quite a bit lighter weight than like a heavy thriller or baffin boot. And so that makes a big difference as well, just the comfort level of a lightweight moccasin.
0: That's actually probably the next thing on my list to make is I made, I made mm. my snowshoes, like I said, last last year. And I've used them a couple times this winter, but I really need to work on the footwear because, yeah, things are just kind of clunky
1: oh yeah I remember the first time I wore moccasins like I was it feels like you're wearing nothing on your feet it literally feels like you're wearing slippers and that just you don't really realize what a difference that makes when you're just walking around you feel like you could you know run at a you know instant and yeah I mean all day wearing slippers on your feet like yes please
0: and I have sweaty feet anyways I I generally produce a lot of moisture off my feet and it's always bothered me modern shoes i mean i go barefoot a lot during the summer but simply because it it bothers me getting sticky inside of shoes and uh i have that problem all winter long i would love to have some moccasins where i didn't have that problem
1: yeah well moccasins too like we wear them in the summertime as well and i have never smelt a pair of moccasins that smell like a boot you know, because that moisture is constantly being wicked away, it doesn't have time to fester and all the bacteria, you know, grow and create that disgusting boot smell. I've never, like, even the people that, you know, notoriously would have stinky feet, you smell their moccasins, they smell totally fine. Um, yeah, and that's a testament to to their breathability. Um, and then you would use those same principles for the rest of your body um, with your... Uh, leggings you're wearing breathable wool merino wool long johns and then a breathable wool pant and then over top you would put a a windproof layer so a cotton canvas wind pant or you can get at like army surplus uh, they used to sell 100 percent cotton but now it's a nylon blend which is still adequate it's still quite breathable And then for your top, same thing, you're going to wear like a merino wool base layer and then a, you know, a heavier base layer and then a chunky sweater and then your anorak over top. And, you know, all of the layers, like we always dress in layers rather than putting on like one big parka and then think that it's going to work for any type of activity level is just naive. So, you know, we're constantly changing our layering. And I think that's key throughout the day is don't once you feel warm don't be shy to take off a layer. I mean it's not uncommon for us to be walking across a big open lake and all we have is our base layer and our anorak on. You know, even if it is -30 out it's because of that wind layer you're protected, but you're you're venting as well. And you know, our anoraks are quite big so you can vent through your armpits if you need to and but if you want to bundle up, then you put a, a wool sash around your waist to prevent any air drifting coming up. So it's all one system that works. Every piece of the puzzle works together to make you as comfortable as you possibly could be in the wintertime in the Boreal Forest.
0: Essentially, then it comes down to breathability in your experience is... Layer up, yes, but everything needs to be breathable, and you're not necessarily looking for a waterproof layer like a lot of people do on the outside.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we don't. We do pack a rain jacket and rain pants and rubber boots. We have these uh, lightweight; they're called tinglys, and they they roll up. And we just use the same boot liner size as our moccasins, and we just stow them in our backup duffel. That you know, ninety eight percent of the winter we don't even pull out, sometimes never. And they're just as like an emergency backup if it if we get a big thaw. Or even some people use them as their like camp boots to slip on and off rather than putting their moccasins on and off. Because at the end of the day, the best thing about the, the hot tent is that even if you do get some moisture by the end of the day, you hang, hang up all your gear and overnight it dries. So every single day you have a fresh start, a fresh set of of your clothing. And that makes a huge difference to a winter camping when you're just in a cold tent because you're constantly dealing with that moisture freezing and how do you dry it out. There's, there's so many different tricks that people do cold camping, but having that wood stove available with that heat to dry out your gear is just, you know, it's a game changer. And so we don't even pull out our waterproof layers, because even if there's a bit of moisture at the end of the day, you know, in the morning, you're starting fresh.
0: Yeah, that, that would be a, a huge game changer. I've, I've done a f- not tons of camping during the winter, but I've camped a fair bit and, you know, done the whole snow cave thing and whatever, but I've never had a warm place where I could dry everything out at, at night. And uh, yeah, after a day or two out and about, it's, you start wondering when it's time to go home.
1: Well, exactly. That's, I mean, and that's, that was a huge game changer for us. You know, we always thought, um, cold, you know, cold camping is just, it's just a procedure of breaking down. So you've got your, you've got your gear and from day one, you're already on the decline. And so, you know, you can spend four or five days out, but by then you're already being like, Oh, this boot's frozen. Well, I'm not, I'm just going to put it in my duffel and use my backup boots and, um, my mitts are frozen. Oh, I'll just use my backup because, you know, you just don't have a good way of drying things out. You might have an open fire, but someone's coming back with a burnt boot
0: Yep. and
1: then, you know, trying to dry it out in your sleeping bag and stuff. Like who wants wet socks in your sleeping bag? Like it's not, it's not exactly luxury. Whereas with the hot tent, you know, cold camping is just a process of breaking down. But with the hot tent, we were out for forty days and felt like we could go for forty more days. You know, with you know, we had a small rep- repair kit. We had we brought some buckskin to repair. You know, to put patches on our moccasins and these types of things. Because we had our toboggan, you can bring that repair kit and and really feel like you're you're living out there and you're thriving in the winter. And you're not breaking down. You're, yeah. You just feel like you could just keep going. If you brought, you know, your snares and, you know, was providing some of your own meat, going fishing and that sort of thing, you really could just stay out there. And that's what we want to encourage people to, to learn is that winter doesn't have to be scary. If you've got the right equipment uh, and the right knowledge, then in this climate and this geographical area, which is the biggest biome in the world um, you can be comfortable you don't have to sit at home looking outside wishing it was spring or summer
0: (laughs) which a lot of people do I know um, yeah that's that's kind of one thing I I hear a lot from people is I mean we don't have winter like you guys do there but I mean we have a pretty long winter and it was a game-changer for me when I I ended college and I brought my cross-country skis up and I started going skiing about three times a week and the whole mental attitude about winter just shifts when all of a sudden you're out and active and exploring and whatnot still.
1: Yeah, for sure. And once you're outside you realize, oh, it's felt so, so bad and yeah. When you're when you're looking out from a in inside in a warm warm place, you know, it's a lot harder to be like, Oh, I want to go outside. It's like, no, I want to stay in, you know, beside the, the wood stove. <laughs> But yeah, if you've got the right, right kit and, and the right knowledge, then you can, yeah, just
0: stay outside. You were, uh, you just mentioned, uh, taking snares and doing some fishing and whatnot. Do you, do you guys do a fair bit of that while you're out and about? Do you guys, uh, forage or hunt or gather any of your food or anything while you're out and about?
1: Yeah, we do, uh, on certain trips are more geared towards that than others, um, are like, tough travel trips that are three weeks long. We typically, uh, we bring all of our food and then if we have time on rest days or whatever, then we'll, you know, if, if we know there's lake trout or something in one of the lakes, we'll we'll chip a couple of holes and set a few snares uh, for for snowshoe hares. But um, so our travel-oriented trips, typically I would say no, but we do do uh, a trip called Life on the Trap Line and we have a crown trapline line um, that surrounds our property that's a thousand acres and and we that's what we do. We take people out on our trap line, setting beaver snares uh, so beaver is a, a primary target for our for our trap line and then we have a course that runs afterwards um, and we we do all of the butchery uh we make jerky we we make soap uh, we're going to be tanning the hides, spray tanning them. And then at the end of the course, they would, you know, if they took both courses, they would have gone out, caught the beaver, come home to our base camp, uh, butchered it, processed it, turned it into jerky or whatever, and then also tanned the hide and made a pair of beaver mitts out of it. And you awesome. know, so it really goes from forest to table to clothing. And it you know, really comes full circle. And we eat every, every part of the animal that we can, that we eat. It doesn't matter whether we, what we catch, whether it's a beaver, mascot, otter, we eat it all. And that's a big part of our kind of ethos for hunting and trapping. And we're going to be getting into that a lot more in the, the fall season as well. Um, I think running running some courses on, on hunting and, and foraging too, i in the In the spring and summer, I'm really into gathering mushrooms and different plants, um, homesteading stuff. So
0: that's something I've been trying to get into over the last um, couple of years. I've always dabbled with foraging, and I grew up vegetarian, so it's only the last couple of years where I've started experimenting with hunting. But I really value the getting your own food and and making use of everything.
1: Yeah, totally. But I
0: know a lot of people are going to be kind of sketched out by the fact you just said you eat, you know, beaver and muskrat and whatever, because people are thinking, mm-hmm. well, it's not beef or chicken. What is it? Speaking to that, how does something like beaver or muskrat taste?
1: It's amazing. Like, I I was really surprised when I took our trapping license course that a lot of trappers don't actually eat the meat. They use it for bait for other animals, like oh, yeah. um, coyotes and lynx and, and that sort of thing. Um so I was shocked because actually I was a vegetarian for about 8 years as well and it wasn't until I wanted to live more closely with the land and 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 off the land that I realized sustainably hunting for sustenance is environmentally so much better than going out and buying tofu and you know all these processed fake meats and and it's just a healthy way to sustainably harvest from the land and yeah, I just felt really good about it. And it t- beaver tastes totally like beef. It's super it's super lean. So we I render all of the fat from so it's not marbled like beef. It's it's super lean meat, but then it all, it has a lot of surface tissue fat and I use that like it's like pure white fat. I use that to render down to make soap or grease and cook with it. Uh, So you have to add a lot of the times I I value the the oil for, for making soap and things. And so I'll add like a a vegetable oil to my, um, to the meat to kind of make it a bit fatty again. And beaver soap is the best soap I've ever, ever used. I have (laughs) a, And make the bars, and then I say, from, from our beaver to yours. <laughs> uh, and it's like, yeah, the best soap I've ever used.
0: Well, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, I make my own soap too, and I've always used, or not always, uh, I primarily use beef tallow. And I've heard that something like pig makes a much softer soap. Is beaver mm. a softer soap too, or is it pretty hard like a beef tallow?
1: Well, like the actual bar is hard but it is super moisturizing. Like it doesn't dry out your skin at all. It makes your hair silky smooth. So yeah, it dries hard, but it's, uh, yeah, it's super moisturizing. Hmm.
0: Beaver fat's definitely not one I can go out and buy. So we'll see (laughs) at some point when I, when I have an option to get a beaver, what I, what I end up doing with it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's worth making soap from it for sure.
0: We talked a fair bit about your equipment and whatnot. And, from what I've seen, you guys make quite a bit of your own. Why, why do you make your own gear?
1: Yeah, well, there's lots of reasons. The first first reason that we started making our own gear was because in the back of Snow Walker's Companion, there was a rudimentary pattern for moccasins, mittens, anoraks. Uh, you could even make your own tent. And at the time, there wasn't really a place we could buy you know, bush moccasins. You could buy Stegers, but they've got this like big hard sole on them, and they don't have the traditional look as much. And um, we just wanted to make our own. And our first pair of moccasins worked so well that it was really inspiring to be like, what else can we make that's you know going to work better than something you can buy commercially? And you know, a lot of the mittens. There's tons of mittens that you can buy on the market, but a lot of them are a synthetic fill. Um, you know, pigskin or cowhide, split grain stuff that is just going to fall apart in, you know, a week. So we're using full thickness hides and, you know, nice felted wool mats that come from a local uh, um, wool mill. And it just, you know, you connect to this natural material uh, a lot more. And then the other huge benefit of making your own gear is that when you're out in the field and you get a hole or a stitch pops, you know exactly how to fix it. And so that level of competency just, you know, shoots through the roof and you're not afraid of your gear malfunctioning because you know exactly how to make it all better again. And that, you know, level of competency out there, that self-reliance has a huge Uh, boost to your confidence to go out and stay out. And that's a big thing that we encourage people to do. A lot of people who come on our trips will beforehand, you know, purchase the DIY kits and make their own gear to specifically come out on a trip with us. And and then to be looking down when you're walking in a headwind with a snowstorm at your homemade moccasins, your home-woven snowshoes, and just see how well they're working is a huge boost for your confidence and it just feels right.
0: I would definitely agree. I love to make my own gear. I would do it even if they didn't work quite as well, simply for the joy (laughs) of making my own stuff. But I love that I can make stuff that actually works as well or better than stuff on the market.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then you can like customize it too. Like for the moccasins, especially we, you know, upsize our, our boot liners, and then sometimes if people have super wide feet, they'll go up three or four sizes, and then they can trim, trim the toe to make it like a custom width uh, boot liner, and then the hide is, you know, you, you, you match the pattern size to the width of your feet, and you can add fur if you want to, or different colors, and yeah, it's just um, it's customized to your specific needs. Um, and that's, I think, really important.
0: Um, you mentioned just a second ago that you sell kits. Uh, I've mm-hmm. seen those before. And then you also mentioned the patterns at the back of the Snowwalker Companion for those that don't necessarily want to buy a kit. Uh, is that still a pretty good pattern? Uh, or are there other places you would go to for patterns? And uh, how do those compare with just uh, with buying a kit and having everything provided? Cause I know a lot of people are probably going to have issues sourcing something like a felted wool for the liners and whatnot.
1: Yeah. So we, we've priced our kits basically as low as we can so that it's accessible to people as possible. Um, and we've done all the work for you. So, you know, we've found the best liners, the best wool, the best hides, and they're all Canadian, uh, or American. Most of our stuff is Canadian made, If not from the U.S. and you know as high quality as you can get, and then we've we've put it together with our our customized patterns that we we use from the Snow Walker's Companion, but we have we've modified it and come up with a pretty good uh, system for sizing your moccasins. And our patterns and instructions are free on our on our website in our info hub. And the reason that we did that was because our ethos is that these we did not make up these traditional skills. These have been around for centuries, and we're just passing on the knowledge. And so we've put in the effort to make, you know, a a pretty comprehensive booklet on how to make them. We've done YouTube videos that are available for instruction, um, and it's all free online, and we just believe that if if you've got your own materials and you want to make your moccasins, fine, and you can use our patterns and our instructions, and that's great. It's getting that traditional skill out there, but if you appreciate our instructions and the effort that we've gone to, then, you know, you can support us by buying one of our kits. Um, but we wanted to make sure that the, the instructions was available to people, even if they couldn't afford or they had their own materials. and And that's Harkens back to when we first started. Like we, we used to buy old fur jackets at thrift stores to cut up um, for our our hoods for our interacts. We used to buy old wool sweaters and cut them up to make our mittens. So there's definitely thrifty ways that you can go about it and still get out there. And yeah. that's kind of that's kind of what we want to encourage people. Like you know we we know we've got young followers who don't have necessarily the money to to buy one of our kits, but that shouldn't stop them from, from getting out. So, you know, get creative and and um find an old wool blanket and cut it up. Like it's uh you can definitely be creative with it. You can get an old pair of rawhide snowshoes. We used to do this all the time and cut out the the broken uh rawhide and we re weave them with with the monofilament. So there's definitely ways that you can be thrifty about
0: it that was one thing I'm kind of curious about because I love the fact that you have kits available. Cause like I said, some things are going to be harder for people to find if you really want a nice high quality wool and, uh, leathers and things like that. I mean, you don't want to have to go out and buy an entire hide or half a hide yeah, or something exactly. like that to make, to make a pair of mens. Um, yeah. so I love the fact you have kits available for people who want to do them. And I'll go ahead and link up, put a link to the kits and to the patterns in the show notes. But at the same time, like um, I have some elk buckskin that I tanned last year, and you know, if I'm if I'm going to make a pair, I'm going to want to use the hide that I tanned because I have it sitting here, and I might as well use what I tanned. So
1: definitely. And then you'll have that experience, you know, when you look at your mittens, you will be like, "This, you know, I tanned this hide," and you can have that extra level of of pride, you know, deeper into the
0: project. It's it's beautiful when they when things come full circle and you've. Uh, participated in every aspect of uh, the creation of, of your own gear and equipment from yeah, sourcing the raw materials to processing them and then uh, sewing or making your own equipment and getting out and using it again. It's it's beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah,
0: 100%. So we've mentioned a couple times you've thrown a few caveats in there about for where you're located, this is the best route you've found. Can you go ahead and tell people a little about about where you where you're at, what type of uh, biome and ecosystem you're in, and yeah, just an overview of where you're at, as well as I guess um, you mentioned you were moving down the creek and you you found the old logging road that was flat. Do you view this as being a a method? the the traditional camping with toboggans whatever that people could use in other types of uh, terrain, or is this primarily somewhere that's a little flatter like you were just talking about?
1: Yeah, so this this traditional winter camping is really designed for the Boreal Forest or, you know, anywhere that's like the lowlands, and basically you can picture wherever you would go in a canoe, on a canoe trip, you can go by snowshoe. And so um, we're in mixed to, to primarily conifer, coniferous forests with uh, spruce, fir um, and pine, hemlock, um, cedar, those types of um, trees. And, we, and depending on where we are, we'll have uh, maple and, and birch as our hardwoods. And once we go further north, it's just into birch and, and alder or poplar. So we're traveling along the lakes and the rivers that you would normally have a canoe trip. However, the nice thing is in the winter time the often the the places that you would camp in the summer are not the ideal places that you would camp in the winter because you picture a nice jut out point on a lake uh you know, where you can get that breeze, summer breeze, away from the bugs. But you can imagine in the wintertime if that north wind's howling you want to be tucked away into a bay and often you'll find the best firewood in those like swampy excuse me swampy bogs that you you know wouldn't even be able to travel on in the summertime because they're all dried up and super muddy and just terrible to go through so rather than a lot of times you portage around those bogs we can actually walk straight down the middle and you know you end up seeing more wildlife because of it you know you can spot a moose or deer or you know muskrat or otter or whatever in those those hard to reach places in the summertime Um, so a lot of it's the same same roots but we end up getting to see a little bit of a different side of the the landscape uh, in the wintertime and it's nice because winter camping is a higher impact activity than summer camping a lot of people even if they're if they are going the traditional route you know with uh, wooden wanagans and canvas packs and you know a canvas canoe they're still packing in packing out all of their own fuel for for cooking some people will cook over an open fire but it's not nearly as much as you would winter camping so it's nice to camp outside of the high-use areas um, in the wintertime so that your impact isn't um, as as visible as, uh, as it would be if you were using the summer campsites. But, yeah, I mean, the, the Boreal Forest is a massive area. It spans all across North America, Russia,
0: and, you know, into
1: Sweden and, and Norway. All of those places have very similar uh, plant life and animal uh, flora and fauna. So you can, anywhere in the world, well, in the northern hem- hemisphere, get, get to the boreal forest pretty quickly. So this traditional winter camping is is geared for a lot of, of different people. And um, it's mostly flat, but there's like, I mean, Ontario's not flat like the prairies, but it's it's rolling hills and if you stick to the waterways then you're walking on flat land and then you get to a portage and then sometimes we end up having to pull out the ropes and you know we've got a lot of different portaging techniques that we use with the toboggans because on the flats they're fine but if you you know once you get some elevation they can be a real brute to 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 move around
0: yeah that's one thing that i i look at enviously of sometimes uh people uh, a little more northeast of us. Um, We are definitely a mountainous terrain, and uh, the waterways around here are definitely not flat. (laughs) So either during the summer or during the winter, uh, it's not easy travel. I mean, during the summer, you get things like whitewater uh, kayaking and things like that, but you don't have, like, a nice canoe trip. Um, And during the winter, you definitely don't get a frozen, fairly level thing to walk on. Mm
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we do do some river travel, but um, the, often the rivers are the rivers are quite big in Ontario. They're quite wide, so like even in the wintertime, we're walking down Class Three, Four rapids, and there, you know, there might be an open lead in the middle or off to one side, but we'll be walking on the shelf ice right beside open water, and it'll be you know two or three feet thick of ice right beside open water. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, you, know, you get to experience that walk and the ice gets so jumbled it's so cool, but we can navigate through these these frozen rapids, which is pretty amazing
0: that is amazing. I think maybe we should uh kind of wind this down a little bit um, start getting getting towards the end. Uh, I've kept you for a while now, so let's go ahead and tell people about your expeditions and uh, what they can expect and yeah.
1: Mhm. Yeah. So we have uh, a whole variety of different courses and trips that you can come on, but the our main kind of uh, goal is to get people out and moving. So a lot of our trips are travel oriented, and we do seven seven day expeditions, all the way up to three week um, expeditions, and they're all in northern Ontario or Quebec. Um, all along a major like waterway linking either lakes or on a river. And every day we travel, so we'll or most days we'll, we may throw in a rest day here or there depending on which route and the conditions. But it's a, a group of ten or twelve, and we have two tents usually. We carry all of our own gear on our toboggan self-supported. Um, we travel about 10 kilometers each day. And to give you an idea of, like, what a typical day looks like, we usually wake up around 6 a.m., moving camp by 8 or 8.30. So you're taking down camp in the dark because you want to use as much daylight as possible for the traveling because days in the the winter are short. So by the time you are moving by 8.30 we're looking for camp for the next night around 3.30. So you don't have a whole lot of time to actually put in the kilometers because it usually takes about three hours to set camp back up again. By the time you pick the spot and are eating dinner, that's about three hours. So the travel itself can be difficult, but then you still have three hours of of work to do um, before you're settled into the tent enjoying a, a glass of wine and... And a nice hearty meal. And so it's a very communal activity. It's a team teamwork to get you know, to get the whole day accomplished and the nice thing about it is it's a self equalizing system. So some people might be physically stronger and can carry a heavier toboggan load or break trail more often or chop more wood and buck more wood. But then the people, you know, who are maybe a less physical They're the ones that are able to lay the bows of the tent, set up the tent, chip the water hole, fetch a bill of water, um, help out around the kitchen, and, you know, pack the toboggans and that sort of thing. So, and as you go along, everyone walks in one line, so the person at the front has, you know, the difficulty of breaking the trail, and every subsequent person behind, it gets easier and easier because the trail gets packed down. So we rotate through the line, you know, if someone's feeling a bit low in energy, they'll just fall back and, you know, be at the back of the line for a little bit. Um, It's communal living, so like I said, we only have two tents for a group of 12. So we all eat in the one big kitchen tent, you know, passing wine around at dinner and um, sleeping on a bed of boughs. Like it's a real sort of communal activity, and everyone bonds, and yeah, it's like a pretty wholesome experience, but it's hard work, and that's why I think people sign up for our trips, because they see us get out there, and we're not afraid to put in the grunt work of of a hard day, and I think that's sort of romantic for people, thinking of, like, life on the trail, you know, is is like this rugged, uh, raw experience, and uh, people don't get that in their everyday lives anymore, and so it, I think it appeals to people who who want to just put in some grunt work and just get it done and be a part of something that's, you know, you're accomplishing pretty impressive uh, expedition, you know, and it wouldn't be possible without the effort of everyone involved.
0: I think we all have the desire to do something difficult. I mean, it's the same reason people run marathons or something. It's We, we all... Want to be tested and challenged in our lives, and so we're all looking for something like that,
1: yeah, totally. And I think that's one of the reasons why our harder trips sell out first now because people see that like i think I think people underestimate the ability of of your bodies and how far you can push yourself. And um, I think just seeing photos of kind of regular people doing, really cool things um, inspire other people to, to sign up and to give it a go.
0: Yeah. Um, I read the Conover's book uh, about a year and a half ago as well. And I told my wife after I read it that I really wanted to do an expedition like that, be out for an extended period period in the wilderness um, on snowshoes in the winter. Uh, I've always loved winter. Uh, I like I like the cold. I like Uh, the beauty, the softness, the stillness that comes with winter. Um, So I told her I really want to do an expedition like that, but it would be much easier if I come uh, with you guys rather than try and plan it all and organize it all on my own. So you may end up seeing me sometime in the next few years.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is like, it is nice to have, uh, I think a lot of people that come on our trips are like, oh, I really want to do my own trip, but I've got no one to go with because all my friends think I'm crazy. And so you end up gathering a group of people who all have wanted to do it, but don't have anyone to go with. And so I think there's a, there's a part of people who have this pride that don't want to um, sign up for, excuse me, a guided trip. But it's, it's more than that. Like when we, when we're leading these trips, you don't really know that we're the guides because it's all, it's such a communal effort that, and it's not like we're sitting back or sorry, you're sitting back watching us do all the work. It's like, no, we need to process all the firewood. So we're going to, everyone is going to be out until that is done and the bows need to get laid. And so you're going to lay these boughs until they're done. <laughs> so, it doesn't feel like a guided trip. It feels just like a team of people trying to accomplish this goal, and and I, so I think sometimes people maybe have a little bit of ego and don't want to like admit that they're being uh, you know on a guided trip. But it it doesn't have that feel. And I and we also do these these trips called the Explorers Club trips, where you know to keep things fresh and interesting for Dave and I, we just like pick a spot on a map and say we're going here and we're doing this. We've never been here. We don't know whether we're going to be successful or not, but we're going to give it a go, and, you know, who who's in? And um, and that's an exciting way of doing things for the participants as well because they feel more involved in in the route finding and uh, finding the portages and having to clear new portages. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty team-oriented expedition, that's for sure.
0: Definitely keeps people more involved at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Rather than it just being like, "Oh, we camp here. Oh, the portage is on the left. Oh, you know."
0: It's, yeah. uh More of an adventure, yeah. figuring it all out together. What What's your average weight on a toboggan that people are are hauling? Would you say?
1: On our longer trips, um, typically anywhere from like eighty to one hundred and twenty pounds. Hundred and yeah, one hundred and twenty pounds. I would say it all depends on the, um, the food, the food weight and, you know, whoever's got the snack box, that's the, that's the heavy one that full of nuts and, you know, chocolate chips, but, uh, try and keep our, our weight down, um, as much as possible. And of course it gets lighter and lighter every day as yep. we eat through the food. But, um, yeah, 80 to a, to 120 pounds, I'd say is pretty average.
0: Have you done much in the way of backpacking?
1: I yeah, I did some backpacking in the Adirondacks in the winter time. Um, loved it, but also like once I got into hot tenting, I was like, Ugh, why would I? Why would I do this again? I mean, other than to go to cool places like in the mountains, but um, and then I've done some yeah, I've done some summer backpacking as well, and I, I like it. I like all forms of being outside, really.
0: Well, I was just curious. What is um, like a, a hundred pound toboggan effort-wise? How does that compare to right. pack weight? Is that similar to doing a forty pound pack, fifty pound pack? Yeah, is it,
1: okay. yeah, totally. I would say, yeah, like and so, and maybe like on our week long trips, the toboggans are sixty pounds or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel because it's it's sliding horizontally, and the the tump lines are so long that. You're really there's very little vertical force um, with the tob- with the toboggan that yeah you could pull you can pull a hundred pound toboggan and it feel less than you know a forty pound pack on your back because you're it's off of your body.
0: Okay, that's that's what I was curious about is kind of the effort comparatively between the two.
1: Yeah, I would say you can you can haul more on a toboggan with less effort.
0: Uh, let's go ahead and uh, tell people where they can find you, your website, um, any social media or YouTube, anything like that, that you want people to connect with you on.
1: Yeah, you can fo- follow us on uh, Instagram and Facebook, um, Pinterest at Lure the North, and our website is lurethenorth.com. and you can call us if you've got any questions and email us, and yeah, we're happy to just help people get outside in the winter.
0: Uh, last thing then to wrap it up, what's your, uh, any advice for p- folks that do want to be more active during the winter? Any last minute tips or advice or anything like that that we haven't covered?
1: Yeah, my my advice to people who want to get out in, uh, in the winter is don't feel like you need to get all of the gear first, you know, start simple, go to a thrift store, get some wool clothing, you know, raid your grandmother's closet and get some of her old knitted sweaters. And uh, my first anorak was just like a old granny's parka that I sewed a wool, you know, a, a fur ruff onto. So you don't get an old pair of traditional snowshoes. They're everywhere. You don't need to first buy everything before you get out. And I feel like that can be a real uh, barrier for people because... You know, we've had people being like, I'm saving up, I'm saving up. It's like, just try it, get out, and then you'll know what part of your system do you want to improve first. Like, for you, you were saying, oh, I really want the moccasins. It's like, yeah, I would start there. Get your feet warm. If your feet are warm, then you can, you know, stay out longer. It's like, oh, now I'm putting in too much effort with these modern snowshoes. So get your pair of traditional snowshoes. So it's all you know, gradual. It doesn't have to be all at once. And if you, if you don't have the money and you want to get into it, you know, just get creative. And that's, you know, a lot of the reason, we were in university when we first started making our own gear. And one of the main parts, parts of that equation was because we couldn't afford to
0: buy any of the stuff that was available. Love that. That'll, that'll make it a lot easier for folks. I don't know. Sometimes people feel like they need permission to go ahead and do it without the equipment.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we have uh, our YouTube is at Lure of the North as well. And we have DIY videos for you to, to get started. So um, yeah, and don't be afraid to call or contact us because you're making your own gear and you have questions. Even if you're, you know, if you're not buying from us, it's fine. We still want to help you get outfitted. And it's not about the gear. It's about the gear getting you out. A means to the end.
0: Thanks for listening, folks. Really appreciate you tuning in. A couple things to wrap this up. Uh, we talked about traditional snowshoes a couple times, and um, yeah, but we never talked about a resource to help you make your own. Kylan obviously mentioned, go ahead and look for an old pair of rawhide ones, take out the lacing, relace them. Uh, that's a, a great opportunity, uh, particularly if you live in the northeast Around here, you're not going to find very many rawhide snowshoes. Um, you're not going to find old traditional wooden snowshoes really at all. So you can go online and find some. Or if you want to build your own, uh, there's a book I recommend. I got it last last winter when I was uh, building my my set of snowshoes. It's called um, Building Wooden Snowshoes and Snowshoe Furniture by Gil Gilpatrick. Check it out. I think you'll enjoy it if you are interested in getting out and being a little more active uh, this winter or winters in the future. Um, the uh, second book, I know we mentioned it, but it was um, snowworkers Companion by Garrett and Alexandra Conover. Um, Kylan mentioned it as, you know, their textbook. that really got them interested in winter camping and traditional winter camping. It's a great book as well. I'll link both of them up over in the, you know, episode show notes over at uh folkcraftrevival.com slash nine i'll also link up kylan and dave's business uh lure of the north in uh its various locations uh social media youtube uh their website lureofthenorth.com yeah i'll link it all up in case you want to check them out appreciate you listening let's get out there and make something